hola, hola, amigos, amigas, players, players, do dudettes, everybody. Welcome back. This will be episode 107, 107, yeah. Murph. We have survived 107 attempts to take us off the air. And our, <laughs> and our listeners are still hanging in there with us, so God They're bless hanging you. hanging in there folks. with us. So, hey, guys, I'm Morgan Wright. I'm your host with the most hair, uh, literally here with my partner in crime. <laughs> hey, everybody, it's Murph. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we knew that. Um, by the way, did you check out my hillbilly picture I posted about you on Facebook? I looked and I didn't see it. I tagged you in it, so go look at your notifications. Oh. Anyway, uh, we'll, we'll talk about it later. And God, good Lord, i got to help you with everything. Anyway, thank you guys for joining us. Hey, just some quick housekeeping. Let's this, get this out of the way before we get to the hilarity. Head on over to Apple, Spotify, hit those five stars. We don't know how it works. It's magic. We just know that it's like Disney. It's Magic Kingdom. It just works. It helps us out a lot. We really appreciate that. You're also going to want to head over to our website, gameofcrimespodcast.com. Actually, the guest we have coming on, we're going to be talking about his books. He's got three books. Uh, we're going to be putting on there. So uh, we got a lot of neat stuff on there. Also, follow us on that thing they call social media, at Game of Crimes on Twitter, Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook, and the Instagram. Also, make sure you go visit our Game of Crimes fans page. Just go to Facebook, type in Game of Crimes fans, and our favorite mafia queen, Sandy Salvato, ruler with the velvet glove. Answer a couple questions. You know, just they're not that tough. Come on, people. You don't even have to study for this. Just answer a couple questions, get close, and you shall be admitted to the inner sanctum. But where you got to be, though, you got to be at patreon.com slash game of crimes. And Murph, we just got through recording. You can't make this shit up. And I, I agree with you. I think this these were we went round the world on this one. <laughs> these, I'm not kidding. I had tears in my eyes on this one. This I told Morgan this is the funniest one he's come up with so far. If you don't laugh at this, you don't have a sense of humor. If something. you don't laugh at this, you're not human. You're that's not alive. Right. <laughs> that's right. I don't that's funny. I don't care who you are. That's right. That's funny, right? But he said. That's right. Well, Elvis is alive, too. By the way, the Elvis does factor into one of the stories, so you'll have he to does. listen to which one. Elvis has and, left the building. And President Bush. And President Bush, right? Yeah. And a, and a banana. <laughs> Bananas. <laughs> so that's, but that's where you got to be because we have, we definitely, we have lots of fun. We've got um, Case of the Month coming up, which I think Murph and I have talked about. The time you hear this, uh, you guys will have heard by now that the Long Island serial killer, they've made an arrest in that case. I think it's interesting. We're going to talk about that for the case of the month uh, because, as we always find out, it's always, oh, he looked like, didn't know anything was wrong with him, looked like an okay guy. And then the other thing is all of these other people got it wrong. Everybody who had a suspect got it wrong. This guy was not on anybody's bingo card anywhere. Everybody got it wrong. So we'll be talking about some of the tactics, techniques, and tools that they use to identify Lisk, the long might serial killer. And we might point a finger at some of those people, that the armchair yeah, right. quarterbacks. You can't see us, but we're pointing a finger over the air right now. So if you feel that burning digit in your eye, that's us. All right. And if you're wondering what it is, you got to come to Patreon and find out. Come to Patreon and find out. Case of the month coming up. All right. Also, hey, uh, you know, guess what? What? Uh, this is a show about crime. Did you know that? I uh, had a clue. Yeah, we talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We take the story seriously, but... You folks know us. We're not going to take ourselves serious. And before we get into it, Murph, guess what time it is? Guess what time it is? I'm going to ask you one more time. Guess what time it is? It's time for Small Town Police All right, Murph. So uh, we've had several stories about people getting booked into jail and them finding various things like a pair of scissors up the rectum and, oh. you know. Yeah. You well, know. this one guy, you may want to rethink what you hide uh, <laughs> because it's really, 
it's emasculating. Let me just put it that way. So uh, this acute, this guy is an acute fraudster. I mean, he was doing identity theft. He utilized stolen information on a credit card to pay for a $3,000 17-night stay at a vacation home. Guess where? Indian Rocks Beach, Florida. Population 3,673. Salute. It's only two blocks from the Gulf of Mexico. He was arrested yesterday at his rental where police found numerous driver's licenses, checks, social security cards, credit cards, and debit cards, all in different names. He reportedly copped to buying an identification off the internet and using it to buy the lodging. So um, he is, he's been hit with, you know, he's done this before, but when being booked into jail, he was warned that additional penalties would apply if he was hiding drugs or contraband. Though Brennan claimed not to be carrying an unfortunate jail deputy, you have to, when you do a when you do a strip search, you have to check certain areas. They have Oh, it's nasty. Well, you, you, you bend over, grab your toes. They have to check, make sure there's nothing there. And then if you're a man, you have to lift up uh, your testicles. Mm-hmm. And when he did that, Uh-oh. look, if you're going to go, as we say, go large, right? That's <laughs> what we're talking about. You, know? <laughs> you can't make this shit up. Look, if you're going to steal, go large. If you're going to steal something, go large. So, Murph, if you're going to hide ammunition behind <laughs> you know, your testicles... You want you want to be impressive. What are you going to hide? I'm going to hide like a you know a 308, you know, or a 50 caliber round, right? A tank round, <laughs> 105 millimeter or a howitzer. Guess what this did? You talk about being a one shot repeater. Guess what this dude had hidden under his? Oh, uh, this is just so nasty. What? A 22 round. A little piddly 22. It. it just goes little pop. That's it. That's all you got for me, pal. A pop. <laughs> Jeez. Oh, this is like, you can't make a shit up. <laughs> That's why I saved it for this one instead, because you cannot. Anyway, uh, he was also in possession of a Bahamas passport and driver's license, both in his name, when he was collared. So he was charged with introducing contraband into a detention facility, uh, and had bond was over $15,000. Yay. And well, th- th- they realized he was a moron shouldn't be out in public. Well, speaking of a moron that shouldn't be out in public, Seth Thomas, 39, from Florida, guess know. what? He was arrested. He was yelling at traffic while walking in the roadway in front of traffic and refusing to stop when he was collared by sheriff's deputy on a street in Seminole, Florida, population 19,364. Salute. Now, he was drinking. You might say, what's the big deal? He was drinking from a can of beer at the time of his arrest, um, and um, he was, you know, booked for disorderly intoxication. So, but Steve, when he was arrested... I'm going to give you three guesses what the can of beer was. Mm. Meth, meth, or meth? No, no, it was beer. He was holding a can of beer. Oh, it's Real PBR. Can of beer. PBR. No. Uh, Rock City? Iron no. City. Iron City beer. No. Uh, Bud Light? No, that would be a crime in and of itself. He was actually holding a can of Florida Man beer at the time of his arrest. The beer produced by Tampa-based Cigar City Brewing is a double India pale ale that is brewed with a nearly criminal amount of hops and a moderate bitterness that just about matches Florida Man's general disposition. He was holding a can of Florida Man beer. (laughs) No kidding. Oh, he earned it. (laughs) And I looked it up at that Florida beer, Florida Man beer does exist. Wow. Wow. I want to check that. And it's in Tampa. That's not too far away. It's in Tampa. Well, you know what? Maybe we ought to consider bringing the guy over that does Florida Man. <laughs> Just uh, that's something to look at. Well, Steve, this next story, again, this is in Florida. This one's in Daytona Beach, so it doesn't really, not too small. But I, I just thought, 
it's the it's not just the story, but it's the facts about the story. So, uh, two people, Anastasia Kretcher and Alexander Dillman. Uh, Kretcher is 19, the woman, Dillman, the man, is 26. They were arrested after lifeguards reported them seeing, well, there's a drink called Sex on the Beach. Apparently, they took it literally. They were having sex on the beach. Mm-hmm. Um, one reported, uh, lifeguard reported that Kretcher and Dillman had sexual intercourse. Now, here's the thing, Murph, the first part of the report. <laughs> he waits 15 minutes before he reports it. They had intercourse for approximately 15 minutes near his watchtower. <laughs> okay, perv. <laughs> You're not kidding. So, anyway, they contacted, the lifeguards contacted them and uh, told them they had to leave. They, that would have been good, except they didn't leave. And what they what did they do? They went to a t- nearby stairwell where a sheriff's deputy encountered them in complete nudity. Now, initially, she denied having sex on the stand. She reportedly said the pair left the beach to find someplace more private. So, anyway, you'd think this is the end of the story, right? They're charged with indecent exposure, a misdemeanor, and booked into the Volusia County Jail. Uh, Dillman was also charged with resisting arrest for refusing to get into the squad car. However, mm-hmm. that's not the end of the story, Murph. Uh-oh. They have priors. Kretcher, the female, Anastasia Kretcher, is facing an aggravated battery count for an earlier incident Monday, just a few days before, where she struck a female acquaintance with a metal metal beach umbrella tube. The victim told cops that Kretcher, who is known as Molly, acted belligerent and exposed herself to beachgoers all day. So she's already in the habit of exposing herself, but this is the clincher. but the other, well, actually in May, this follows up. She was arrested following a bloody altercation with a male friend at a Daytona Beach resort. The victim told cops that his relationship with Crutcher had been of a sexual nature as they film adult videos together. Shock! Uh, however, neither party views their relationship as dating. The man claimed that Crutcher bit him in the groin and punched him in the head. While the bite caused significant injury to his genitals, the victim told police he did not believe it caused any permanent damage. Oh! Oh! Okay, let's just move on. That's just moving on. (laughs) That's painful in several different ways. Oh, that hurt when I read that the first time. Say, I got to talk about this, but all you could. Oh, (laughs) ow. Oh, geez. Mm -mm. I don't want to. I don't want to say it. No. (laughs) This is not Patreon. Be careful. Okay, I'm not going to say it. (laughs) Anyway, all right, back to our regularly scheduled hilarity, right? So let's set this up. So this is pretty cool. This actually, part of a Genesis came out of uh, episode 90 with TJ Webb. We learned about something then, and I think it was Murph. uh, You'd actually had the contact to talk about our next guest, Jason Redman. Yeah, we got the. Uh, actually, it came from Lou Velozzi, who was uh, one of our original guests on the whole show. He's episode episode four. four. Yep. Uh, Lou's, if, you, if folks remember, was retired ATF that ran their undercover storefront operations. He's uh, Lou and I have become very, very good friends now. We stay in touch. We all the made time. him who he is today. His start got started on Game of Crimes, episode four. Now he's go. on a series. They're doing a whole series about undercover storefront operations. His book, Storefront Operation. Mm-hmm. Thank you, thank you to Game of Crimes. We we should get ten percent as his agent, Murph. That, well, I, you know, I don't want to tick him off because he's still a big boy. Yeah, that's why we're doing this over the internet because he can't kick my ass over the internet. So, well, you know, he texted me the other day. He was in Belize. He's working down in Belize. I'm not sure what he's doing down there. It might be a secret spy or something. But, uh, but anyway, Lou made this introduction to Jason Redmond. Now, if, if you're not familiar with Jason, uh, former Navy SEAL, um, I didn't know his story until I read his book, The Trident. He's got three different books out, but the one I read is The Trident. Um, 
you've got to read this book. And here's the thing I love about Jason's story, because let me tell you, in, in law enforcement and in the military, there's a lot of type A's and, and all first responders, uh, because you need people that are willing to step up and take control of situations when you know nobody else is willing to do it. Jason's transparency and his honesty talking about his career and the mistakes he made are shocking that he would admit all this. Uh, I'm just so proud that he did because he finally, he had some leadership that recognized potential in him. You're going to hear the story. Uh, he's going to tell you what he went, had to go through, which I think initially was embarrassing, but he'll tell you that's what made him into a, a real true operator. And then that's when he began to shine. So this is a story. Uh, it's a ser- story of uh, personal sacrifice of almost being killed of a family of having a wife who has stood behind him, uh, beside him, no matter what happened. I mean, I have as much respect for her as I do for him because that doesn't always happen. So this is, uh, for me, this is a very motivational story. It was an honor to have Jason on here. Uh, I mean, this guy, he's, he's doing big time stuff, you know, for him to take time and, and join us here on game of crimes. We truly appreciate you doing that, Jason. And he looks prettier than you do. I will say, even with everything he went through, he's pretty guy. Well, I'm not going to dispute that. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's like, he can kill us 17 different ways, 16 of those being classified. Oh, man, I've been following him on social media, and he's still hitting the gym every day. Boy, he's still in good shape. And when we had him on the podcast, he had like a freaking 55-gallon drum of water that he was drinking from, just <laughs> lifting it and drinking. Okay. Anyway, but Murph, I yes. got you know, we can't get into Jason's story. We can't talk about his books. We can't talk about everything he's doing until I ask you, are you ready to play? The biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the SEAL-friendly game of crimes. Yeah, baby. So everybody get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on. I think you're going to love this story, man. This is a story of sacrifice and survival. Bring on Jason. Hey, players, just a quick programming note. There was an unfortunate set of technical errors, not on our end, but on the platform end, that created a couple of glitches. We think we've got them fixed, but you're going to notice some skipping and some pauses. Just please work with us on this. We think we figured it out, what happened on the platform, and it'll be much better for the next one. But right now, focus on Jason Redman and the message. All right, guys, this is going to expound upon a great session we had with Kevin Holland. In fact, when we had Kevin Holland on, Kevin was the only publicly acknowledged member at that time of both DevGrew and Special Mission Unit Delta, commonly called Delta Team. We spent so much time talking about buds and stuff, we hardly got into the law enforcement stuff, but man, we got a true operator this time. It's somebody who's actually an inspiration you- to uh, <laughs> somebody's an inspiration to one of our other guests, TJ Webb, which you meant. We want to welcome to the show Lieutenant. Not Lieutenant Dan, but Lieutenant Jason Redman. Salute. Welcome, brother. Cheers, gentlemen. Appreciate you. Appreciate all our law enforcement professionals out there. Yeah, baby. Hey, listen, I I got a fangirl here just for a second, man, because I'm so excited to have you on the show. I know I aggravated the shit out of you trying to get you on. I know you're a busy man. I cannot thank you enough. I apologize that you're friends with Lou Velozzi because we're praying for him every day, but you know he's got his own demons. <laughs> yes, the Dominus Requiem, yes. Come on, he's, just, a, he's a big, sexy, strapping lad. I mean, come on, you got to tell you it what, to I love that guy. He was, yeah. uh, he, he started out, he had Javier now on his podcast 
to start with. That's how I got to know the guy. Just we've gotten to be friends now. When he comes to Florida, he and his wife call us. We'll go over and meet him for breakfast or whatever. He's, and he's good people. And you know what's Absolutely. funny is I've never met Kevin Holland. Although we have men, we have crossed more paths. Oh boy, have you? Yeah. And we're trying to we're trying to link up and do something together. He and I were talking probably I don't know a couple months ago. We actually got on a call. So well, he was on uh, Jack Carr's Danger Close podcast. Um, yeah. It was funny to listen to him because I was scrolling through some stuff and said, I know that voice. That's a North. Anytime you see somebody running down a road in North Carolina carrying a log, yeah. they're either a fool or they're Kevin Holland. Oh, it's, it's, what the hell is wrong with that boy? <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and listen, I want to say thank Look, you. Look, a too. lumberjack got lost. I got, you, I got your book here, man. And, and thank you for the inscription Seriously. here. Morgan, he yes. says, let me read it to you more. He says, Murph, you're the best damn law enforcement officer in the world. Thank you so much for the sacrifices and putting up with Morgan's shit. That's exactly what it says, word for word. <laughs> no higher honor. No higher honor. <laughs> all right, all right. Let's get down to the interview here because I want to fangirl on you all day, man. This is oh, a true honor Murph, to beat you. Murph, you're going to have to go change your pants again. Too many Christmas here, My man. Pa- I might have panties on today, man. You just never know. Depends. Well, it depends. I might have, it might have depends. Is he wearing, is he wearing depends? I yeah, mean, where see, are we going here? No, I was, I, was at his, I was at his house when he had his knee surgery. He couldn't get up, so he said, hey, would you mind taking this to the bathroom for me? I said, whoa! Yeah, and it, but he didn't mind. Didn't that's, mind. That's a true no, friend. No, that's a true friend. That's, that's a, a true, true friend. friend. <laughs> yeah. I won't tell you the definition of a true friend. We're going to try and keep this somewhat family-friendly. But anyway, let's talk about you, Jason Redman. So first of all, kind of just, you know, real quickly, you know, what was your background what made you decide we would talk with uh, guys out of, and girls out of law enforcement, you know, Cosa Nostra, thing of ours? How did you get started? But with you, where did you come up with this idea to join um, the Navy? I mean, were you watching the village people one day and you saw the song in the Navy and you said, I got to do that? I mean, what was it? Uh, you know, you're absolutely right. The YMCA song. And I was I couldn't decide with a name like Redman. I was like, do I go become an Indian chief? And later people told me, no, you're not allowed to do that. So the only other option was to go in the Navy. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> wow, firefighter was cool too, but, uh, oh, come actually, on I now. Did come go, on. I, whoa, 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 whoa. Firefighter. All right. Okay. Oh. You cross the line. Interview over. All right. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the reality is I, I came from a family of, uh, service. So my, my dad served, I grown up, I grew up listening to the stories of, uh, my grandfather's on both sides, served in World War II. My great uncle was uh, killed in World War II. He was a pilot, flew in the Pacific Theater and was shot down. Um, my grandmother, my, my dad's dad was a very decorated B-24 pilot. And I remember le- learning stories about him as a kid, you know, flew uh, all 25 of his missions, seven air medals, distinguished flying cross, actually cr- crash landed. They got shot down and he managed to crash land his plane in a in a snowfield in Yugoslavia, and he and his team evaded back to Italy. Everybody made it back, so he got the uh, Distinguished Flying Cross for that. So, so I just grew up with um, this. From a young age, all I ever wanted to do was be on the military. I wanted to be a pilot. I started out with that. I saw Top Gun, and I was like, dude, I am so Tom Cruise. Hey, Top Gun is the equivalent of guys that go into DEA watch. I watched Miami Vice. I want to be Sonny Crockett. Damn right. See, if I had been a little bit younger, I'm, I, you know, Miami Vice, I was right on the cusp. Yeah. But uh, Top Gun, 11 years old, saw that movie. I was like, my grandfather was a pilot. I'm going to be a pilot. There you go. And uh, I... Um, I don't know, somewhere a couple years later, 13, 12, 13 time frame, uh, years old, um, 
we, we lived on a farm in North Carolina. I liked being outside. I liked running around in the woods. And uh, Oh, my God. And, another North Carolina guy. We were just talking about Kevin Holland and his poll. I'm going to have to ask you about the carrying a log, too, you lumberjack. Okay. I was carrying, well, you know, I was, uh, I, was uh, I, I, I blossomed late, so I was probably carrying a stick. You know, I mean, it wasn't quite a log then. Yeah. <laughs> Where but, at North uh, Carolina? Uh, down south of Fort Bragg, a little town called Lumberton. Ah, they've lumbered in very well. The Lumbee yep, Indians. So, yeah, not 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 a whole lot there. But, not uh, much. <laughs> um, so yeah, that made my dad one day say, I got really interested in, uh, started learning about special operations. Um, you know, the Green Berets. Uh, I think I had read about long-range recon patrols in Vietnam. That fascinated me. And uh, one day when I was about... Um, probably 14, my dad said, you know, if you're really interested in special operations, there's a group of guys guys out there called Navy SEALs. And um, my parents had divorced. I spent equal time down in the Virgin Islands with my mom who lived down there. So I was a great swimmer. Uh, and my dad said, this may be what you want to look into. And there really wasn't a whole lot of information about them back then. Um, really not many books. Uh, we were still a few years away from the Navy SEALs movie having come out, you know, Charlie Sheen hadn't busted onto the scene winning yet. Winning, <laughs> winning, <Yeah>. we're winning. <laughs> that's right. So, so is that normal? No, that's Hawkins. He's part fish. Um, <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I don't know why something about it. And I was probably the most unlikely candidate, you know, at 14 years old, I wasn't a big athlete. I was the runt, uh, literally probably I was <laughs> Five foot nothing and ninety five pounds, about fourteen. You sound like Rudy. Rudy was five foot nothing. You know, <laughs> Rudy. I, 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 I was, I was that. And I mean, I think anyone, if anyone had heard back then, you know, uh, when I said, "Hey, I'm going to be a seal," I mean, people laughed at me. Um, but I, 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 you know, the one thing that makes seals and special operations is. Um, I think there's two things. One, you have the ability to endure pain and discomfort longer than the other person. And two, as you get further along, your ability to process information rapidly in chaotic environments. And uh, and at least the first one, I was good at, man. I could take a beating. I didn't know it yet, uh, but I could. <laughs> and uh, at about 14, 15, I said, well, I got to start doing stuff to make myself tough. Well, wait a minute. You said you could take a beating. Is that when this, I mean, what did you do? Did you intentionally go out and get your ass kicked by people or what happened? Some of that. I mean, I joined the football team, this 95 pound run, joined the football team. <laughs> you were the was, football. <laughs> I was. I got my ass kicked on a regular basis, but I loved it. And, uh, and I just, man, I went all in. I started wrestling. I said, well, you know, I should probably wrestle. So these were the things that I started doing to, to build myself up. And um, probably about 16, I walked into the recruiting office and said, hey, I want to be a SEAL. And there was an old, crusty, I mean, the, the epitome of the crusty boatswain's mate. And for those that don't know the Navy, the boatswain mate, they, they're, they're practically the pirates of the Navy. These are the guys that work on the decks. It's the oldest raid. It goes all the way back to the very beginning of the Navy. They're the guys that, you know, basically run the anchors and the lines and they paint the outside of the ship. And there, this guy was as crusty as crusty get tatted up from, you know, both sides. From and a rank took, standpoint, is that like an E4, E5, E6 for those in was, the middle? 
he was an E6. So he was a boatswain mate first class. And this guy probably had come out of, he had probably been, he was probably over 20 years. So he was one of these guys. The fact guys that he was that, still an E6 after 20 years tells you something. <laughs> yeah. This guy had probably been busted multiple times. And he was one of these guys that told you exactly what he thought. And he told me exactly what he thought. You know, get the hell out of here, Runt. You're never going to make it. You'll never be a SEAL. And he chased me out of the office. <clears throat> and um, for whatever reason, that didn't deter me. I, I kept coming back and he would chase me away and chase me away um, until finally, you know, about the time I was 17, he switched out with another recruiter by the name of Henry Horn. And uh, Henry Horn was like, hey, man, if you want to be a SEAL, I'll help you. And he did. And that's how I ended up going down the path. I enlisted uh, my senior year, September 11th, 1992 is the day I joined. The wow. Navy. Yep. Well, that and, has, uh, has a special meaning then for you. And crazy because I had no idea. Nobody knew what that date meant. I sure didn't. And it wasn't until obviously many years later that it suddenly took such significance. But well, do you um, want to know the historical context of that? I'd love to. September 11th, 1683, the Gates of Vienna. You guys can go look it up. That's actually the day Germanic and Austrian forces stopped the final incursion of um, uh, of uh, Islamic forces into Europe. And that's, it was called, hey Murph, this is, <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. you have to be a student of history to understand this stuff. So, but no, to, you, know you, you can go look it up, 1683, uh, Gates of Vienna. The significance is my oldest son was born on 9-11 of 93, no, 70. Shit, I can't remember. 79, he's an old part. <laughs> I can't remember. Man. I was about to give you the dates of my daughter's birthdays. <laughs> Murph, okay, I'm Murph, going back to sleep now. You go back to sleep, Murph. We'll, we'll have an interview here. Yeah, <laughs> but anyway, but I was just, but just from a military standpoint, you start thinking about because you have to, if you can't, you can't defeat an enemy unless you can define them, unless you can understand them, and understanding their place in history, what they think of, you know, what's important to them. I mean, that's that's why I studied a lot of that. But um, but you joined, so that was uh, your join date. So were you in a delayed entry program then, um, coming out of I high was. school? Yep. So I joined the beginning of my senior year. And once I graduated, I headed off to boot camp uh, in the summer of 93. Where'd you go? Uh, I went to Orlando. So before uh, Orlando is no longer, I think they closed in 95 because now all Navy boot camp is up in Great Lakes. So I went to Orlando and then from Orlando, I headed to um, to Virginia Beach. So the first time I got to Virginia Beach was in um, late uh, 93. I got there and I went through intelligence, um, a school, MOS school for the Army veterans out there, but basically your job within the Navy. And back then the SEAL teams didn't have a direct pipeline. You basically had to qualify with a job in the Navy. They sent you that school after you made it through that school, then they would allow you to go to BUDS. Uh, so that was my first uh, My first assignment was uh, four months in Virginia Beach going through intelligence school. Tough place. Yeah, it was good. There was a lot. Uh, I was stationed at Damneck uh, and kind of interesting. I started my career at Damneck and I finished my career at Damneck. And uh, pretty cool. We actually had a... Uh, we had a senior chief who worked in uh, the intelligence school, and her husband was actually assigned at, at Damneck. And all of us that wanted to be SEALs, he would come kick our ass uh, multiple times a week through the brutal, um, you know, Virginia Beach winter. I remember one day, and I don't know January, February, he took us for a run in and out of the surf. And I remember coming back to the um, coming back to the the 
locker room after we were done. And I, I literally had a snotsicle <laughs> hanging off my face. You know, that's how cold it was that day. It was like in the 20s. And I was like, this is going to be great. But did, did he run it with you? Uh, he wouldn't, I mean, he might've gotten in the water with his lower body, but he, he was not getting all the way in the water. He was getting us wet and sandy and, oh. um, and it was good. It was good. Uh, you know, the, the Virginia beach winter water is not as cold as Pacific ocean, uh, water. Although it's very cold. Coronado. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the beach getting, you know, East coast water gets nice and warm in the summer, but it is frigid in the winter. You know, you're down in the thirties and forties. Well, I love it. I love it there because when you go over on the Devgrew side, you've got the mess hall there. Now, this is now. You've got the mess hall there, but right outside, they've got that like airport hangar thing with all the weights and the tires. So it's like if you, while you're sitting in there eating, you look out and you see people working out and you're like, well, damn, I, should I be out there working out or yeah. should I be in here chowing down like I'm having Maybe a Maybe I time? need another salad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or, or another entree or dessert. So did you pick intelligence or was that picked for you? No, I picked it. And, you know, like many young knuckleheads, you know, the, the recruiter sold me on, you'll be like James Bond, um, you know, and kind of funny. Oh, yeah. I mean, right. Huh? <laughs> yeah. I was assigned to, uh, after I graduated, I was assigned to the headquarters unit for the East Coast SEAL teams. And I worked in the intelligence shop. And uh, basically, I worked in our classified library. So all, all I did every day was like inventory publications and catalog classified stuff. And I was like, maps. I was like, this sucks. James Bond, my ass. I'm a glorified librarian. <laughs> and uh, so, but it was good. I learned a lot. I want to ask you a question about that. Cause there was that, that uh, one of my buddies is a major uh, with the national guard bureau. He's an information security officer. And after this deal with this tech Sarah, this kid, the national guard unit in Massachusetts came out What's what? This is kind of a you know just a little bit of a tangent, but I get to call an audible here. Why do you think it's so difficult now to get people to adhere to? You have a security clearance, you just don't share this shit. What what has changed between your time, our time, and now to where people go? Oh, I'll share, I'll share top secret battle plans. I'll share this. I'll put them on a Discord server. I'll share them with. I mean, what's happened? Is it? We don't think it's it's not really. It's not an issue of age. It's that. Yeah, he's pulling up. I think this. And I think uh, holding up my phone, I think this and the, the the loudest voices make the most noise. And there's a loud voice of people out there who feel like uh, everything should be transparent. And they fail to understand why we have classified, you know, we, we classify things to protect our methods, our sources, our people, future operations. Yet there, and I think that the younger generation is coming up and believes in this idea, oh, I'm a better member of society if I'm more transparent. And I don't think they've been involved in the military apparatus long enough to fully understand, hey, what you're doing is actually it's compromising all kinds of things. It's compromising future operations. You're compromising lives. You're, you know, it's so dangerous yet there are people and a lot of the American public believes this. Oh, I'm an American citizen. So I should be entitled to all this information. And it's just not true. That's Uh, the word entitled. Yep. So we, we have to protect this information. Um, You know, it's one of the things, you know, I mean, there's a running joke right now that every SEAL has a book, uh, and uh, and I'm guilty. But I also worked very closely with our community and said, hey, what can I talk about? What can't I talk about? And I was constantly going back. There is a individual at every command or at a, at a parent command called the um, uh, 
special security officer, and it is their job to protect all the classified information at that command. So I would go to them. The, the command knew that I was writing this book. I went to them in the beginning. I went to my commanding officer. I went to my master chief and said, hey, what do you think about this? They said, we like it. It's humble. Go ahead. Let's make sure we're doing it all right. So probably every few weeks I would meet with the SSO and I would say, can I talk about this? And he would say, no, yes, good. So I think that's the difference. I think there are people out there who do it right and understand, hey, it's good to get some of these stories out. I think that is a positive thing, but there are others that don't do it right. And then there are even others on the extreme end of the spectrum, like this kid from the National Guard, for whatever reason, decided he was going to leak all this information uh, that's very damaging. I mean, hell, you look at our politicians right now. I mean, you look at, I mean, it's amazing to me, their hypocrisy, and I don't want to get into politics, but you know, you look at, you know, Clinton got away with uh, classified information, but now the reverse side, they're they're going after Trump for this. You know, I go back to the after the briefing and it was I can't remember which senator it was, but we were tracking bin Laden through a satellite phone. And they didn't really know that till a senator came out and frickin spilled the beans. And, you know, the other way we were tracking him, too. And a lot of people didn't know that till somebody leaked it. Every time he would do a video, rather than doing the backdrops that they did, he'd be behind a rock or whatever. There was this expert who understood rock formations. He could tell you where that rock formation was. And and we, we constantly shoot ourselves in the foot with doing this because the reason I kind of got into it, I'm glad you mentioned the book uh, before we get too far astray, but uh, the guy was his name Bisonet, the other seal that wrote the book about yeah, what is the view what is the view of the community when somebody goes out and does a tell all like that without going through channels? I, you know, I, I'm friends with all of these guys. I I don't agree with what they did, I'll tell you that. Um I you know, you will sign a document that says you're not going to talk about these things. So once again, there's a right way to do it and there's a wrong way to do it. And um and some of the guys didn't do it the right way. That's the bottom line. Um, you know, I tried to make sure I did it the right way. Even now, when I still do public me media stuff, I reach out to the command, the, the headquarters command. And I say, hey, I'm, you know, I got asked to do some media stuff. You know, what is our messaging? I want to make sure we're aligned with that. Um, got, so guys that don't do it the right way. A lot of people look down on them in the community. They say, hey, you know, we all agreed that there were things we weren't going to talk about. and You decided you were going to talk about them. Um, there is no you can justify it all you want. Uh, but at the end of the day, you said you weren't going to talk about those mm -hmm. things. And maybe taking credit for things they didn't really do. I don't know if that's the case, but it seems well, like I it is in law enforcement. And Rob tries to, to and some of the guys try and say, hey, that we were all part of a team. And that is the funny thing about it. I mean, uh, you know, anybody who's done extensive house clearing, you know, close quarters combat knows that you have no idea where you're going to end up in that house by the way the room flows, by what, you know, uh, enemy contact you encounter in a room. People are going to get sucked into that. You're going to blow by that depending on everything related. Everything changes with every target. So you never know where somebody's going to end up. So it really is... I mean, it really was the luck of the draw, the guys that ended up on that top floor in the Bin Laden mm -hmm. raid. It was not, not only that, but it was it was actually bad luck because one of the uh, uh, um, helicopters, you know, the, the Night Stalkers hit the tail rotor. And so the team that was supposed to go in didn't. And so you always have a contingency, right? So then the contingency was the next team steps up and goes through, if, if, I, if I understood my history right. 
which is always going to be the case. I mean, we're always going to have backup plans. And I mean, a target, the flow through a target is so fluid. You know, we, we, you know, oftentimes we call it that ball of fire. I mean, it's just flowing through a target and you never know where you're going to end up. You don't know, you know, obviously sometimes we know the layout of a building and sometimes we absolutely don't. So you have no idea what that flow is going to look like based off the interior of the building and the problems you encounter. Okay. Hey, uh, Jason Murph, you guys hold on for a second. We've got, again, I've been using this product for a long time. want to talk to you about an exciting new thing that's coming out from Grammarly. So, uh, Steve, you know, a lot of the things that we do involves a lot of writing. We write for work. You know, we mm-hmm. have to write a lot of stuff, right? So this is one of the things I love about this. You know, when I'm struggling, when I have to think about what is it I need to do, how do I improve my productivity? Yep. Guess what? Grammarly Go now helps you tackle these projects. It's a new product that brings the capabilities of personalized AI, artificial intelligence, to the Grammarly experience. And I'll tell you, man, it's uh, if you want to look professional, and I'll give you an example. I'm, I'm currently talking to two different organizations about becoming a member of their boards. And when I provide things to them, I want it to sound professional. I don't want it to sound like a third grader, right? And Grammarly Go has been so instrumental in making my writing sound more professional, offering suggestions of which I'll take about 99.9% of those. And look, I've had to, I've been under, like I said, I've been under the gun for The other thing too is when you're writing for multiple press outlets and other stuff like that, you want to be creative. You don't want it to sound like it's just a boilerplate where you're giving the same story. So right. one of the things that helps me is it really helps me enhance my creativity about the things that I'm writing. And that way I get to accomplish more. You know, and the, the cool thing about it, when it offers you suggestions, it'll change the color of the word or the sentence. And all you have to do is hover over it. If you want it, you just click on the on the suggestion, and there it is. If you don't want it, there's a little dismiss, and you keep rolling. It absolutely does not slow you down one bit. No, and look, guys, you can get ideas, unlock it. This is the other thing, too. It You need some inspiration? No problem. Save time with AI. Get instant drafts or outlines with Grammarly Go, man. It can even help you plan out your whole itinerary believe it or not, for your next vacation. <laughs> That's pretty cool. And think about this. If you were trying to find a new job and you've got to provide a, a resume or a bio or a CV, you need Grammarly Go, I'm telling you. It will put the professional touch on there for you. Yeah, and look, sometimes I've only had a couple hours, like I said, to finish stuff. Grammarly Go helps me rewrite until I'm satisfied it's going to meet uh, the quality that I know our PR teams need. And you're going to love this. Murph the best part, it's free to use. <laughs> so you guys will be amazed at what you can do with Grammarly Go. So go to grammarlygo.com slash go to download and learn more about Grammarly Go. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash go. Okay, let's get back to the story. And that's the whole thing is that that's why I heard somebody joke one time, why are there 26 letters of the alphabet? Because that's you need to have 26 plans. There's plan A, B, C, D, you know. <laughs> It's training on that stuff. I was impressed, though, too. Uh, I mean, I just I read the book with Leif Babin and Jocko Willing just on, ex, you know, um, extreme ownership. But it, I just what I was amazed with is how much detail went into the planning. It's like, Murph, you were talking about some of the ops plans you did. You'd go out and do things. Everything you had to have an op plan. Just the level of detail and work that everybody thinks you just jock up, you put stuff on, you go head into a vehicle and you start blowing shit up. And it's like if you knew the hours of prep before that that had to go into before you could even set foot on the ground somewhere, right? Well, you know, and the sad part is that became necessary because when you did do it off the cuff, that's when people got hurt. You know, it's uh, a perfect example is my partner got shot in 89 and and Kevin Stevens, who we had on the show, uh, which he just had a birthday yesterday. Happy birthday there, brother. 
But, uh, you know, he got hit twice with 45 caliber slugs and the informant caught a 357 right in the throat and he never made it to trauma center. That's what happens when you don't do it the proper way. So uh, I'm sure it's the same with you guys, Jason, that, that rules come about from mistakes that were made in the past. Yeah, lessons learned in blood, we say. And and I will say, I think the SEAL teams, we were, what's interesting is we might have even overplanned prior to 9-11 happening. Um, man, we would have contingencies on top of contingencies on top of contingencies, you know, COAS, course of action one, course of action two, course of action three. And what happened in the war is, you know, targets changed, but the mechanics of the target didn't. Lock down the exterior, take down the interior, you know, later we started looking at, do we, you know, based on the intel we would collect on target, do we flex to another target? What's our next plan? So the mechanics would be the same. So the the timeline of planning got a little shorter because, you know, when you got good at what you did, you started to figure out, hey, some of these things are the same. Now we would look at it like I remember there was a target that we took down um, that there was a very long distance we had to cover um, several hundred yards to get to the target building. And we really were worried about well, what if they open, you know, what if they have a crew serve weapon inside this house as we're trying to cover these 200 yards of open terrain. Um, and, and when we were looking uh, about every 25 yards, there were sewage ditches. And we were like, well, if the if the shit goes down, get in the shit. That yeah. was kind of what we <laughs> joked about. And, uh, you know, I mean, either forward or back, you had a, you know, you had a, you know, two, three foot ditch. Uh, you know, better to be alive and shit than dead by a belt fed. So, so those are the things that you would start to look at, you know, that was more, okay, we have a plan for this to deal with it on the fly based on this specific target. And it's amazing what you can hide behind and how small you can become when lead oh. starts flying down range. Even good. a curve is like, curve, hey man, that's there. I can take a curve, man. Yeah. I can hide behind this rock. <laughs> Damn <laughs> this right. This tree. It's very small rock. <laughs> very small. Yep. Hey, just on, uh, so we're going to get into the story, but just before we talk, on average, you talked about moving. Uh, how much, how, how much would you weigh? And then by the time you got your gear on, how much extra would that weigh? In other words, how much, how much are you normally carrying when you went out on an operation? Probably 40 to 50 pounds was the average for most guys. I mean, by the time you have your body armor, um, Whatever extra gear you were carrying, water, weapons, radios, uh, the average was probably about 50 pounds. If you were on a longer mission, uh, like in most of our missions in Iraq that I was doing, they were, they were short. We were, we were going in, we'd hit a target, we'd either fly in or drive in, and we'd be in and out. Usually we'd go in at night and we'd be out before sunrise. Um, Afghanistan, we did longer targets. So now you're adding maybe additional radios and batteries and supplies. Yeah. So now you're talking about, you could be carrying 70, 80 pounds. When I was a younger communicator and all you damn communicators that are out there listening to this, that now, you know, your radio is like one of these, you know, I used to carry three different radios at a minimum, along with all the cables and batteries. I remember I swam across, we did a big exercise in Ecuador. And, uh, and we had to set up a pretty robust mission support site. We were coordinating all kinds of different stuff. And I think my ruck alone weighed 100, 100 pounds on top of, all, you know, my regular H gear and weapon and everything else. I mean, I could barely walk. Thank God it was only a couple hundred yards across the beach to where we laid up. But Hey, Murph, tell them about that super secret CIA radio they gave you for going in the jungle. <laughs> Man, we were, we were, so we're down in Colombia, you know, looking for Pablo and living up in Medellin with the Colombian National Police. And, and, uh, 
CIA called me in Bogota one day and I went up to see them and they're like, okay, listen, we got this new radio and we need to try out in the field. So we want you to take it with you. You know, it's a backpack radio. Damn thing weighed 40 pounds. And, you know, just it's a test, you know, and they said, gave me the call signs and freaks and all that stuff. And so we get out and they fly us in by the Hueys and drop us off. And we go on patrol for like six hours in the Andes Mountains. Man, I set that radio up probably a half dozen times. To this day, nobody's an, ever answered me. And I could just see him back in CIA going, that, that idiot. It wasn't a radio. It was a collection of bricks with just an exterior that looked like a radio, dude. I, I was going to say, it was, a, it was a human test. They wanted to see how long you'd actually carry this radio. And- yeah, let's see how stupid this guy really is. Well, I lived up to it. Yeah. Uh, well, that's, that's, that's why you went to DEA. Um, yeah, so, well, let's let's get into this now. So now now you're an intelligence dude. Uh, you're, you're getting your training at what point do you start becoming eligible um, to to go through the qualifications for SEALs? Well, you're actually part of the pipeline. So you're already, uh, when I went through, you would qualify in boot camp. So they didn't have a direct pipeline like they do now. In boot camp, you raised your hand and said, hey, I want to try out for SEAL training. And what, um, what kind of, what does that tryout look like back when you did it? I mean, uh, separate I, I tests and still, everything? Yeah, I think it's still pretty similar. There may be a couple minor changes, but it's a um, it's a 500 yard swim, side stroke or breaststroke, in under uh, 1230. You get a 10 minute break, and then it's uh, as many push ups you can do in two minutes, two minute break, as many sit ups you can do in two minutes, two minute break, as many pull ups as you can do. Uh, no, t- uh, I don't think there's a time limit. Well, there's got to be a time limit. Maybe it's two minutes. I don't remember. And then you get a 10 minute break. And uh, and then you do a run. You've got a mile and a half run. When I did it, you wore you actually wore the Navy jeans. They they called them uh, dungarees and boondockers. These steel toed boots that you had to run in uh, when you did the test, and you had to do that mile and a half and under eleven thirty after you did all the rest. That is a pretty good clip. Damn. Yeah, and uh, a lot of guys. I'm, I was amazed. Out of uh, there were probably twelve or fifteen of us that took the test, and there was only three that made it. Um, and uh, and and I ended one of the guys I went through buds with. He didn't make it. Good dude. A lot of respect from the other guy. We ended up. Man, we crossed paths throughout our entire career. I'm still friends with him to this day. Now, did you prepare for it the way Kevin Holland did? You go trudging through the North Carolina countryside, carrying a log. <laughs> What's that? You know, <laughs> I, I didn't do the log thing. So I had left North Carolina. My parents divorced and I bounced back and forth. I did a lot of my training down in Florida. Um, so one, you know, like I back at the beginning, I said, well, I need to do hard things. I did football and I wrestled and I really just started um, pushing myself physically. Um, I had met a uh, our assistant wrestling coach was a former Mar, uh, not Marsak. He was a um, force recon guy. And he helped me train. So probably three or four times a week, we lived about five miles from the beach uh, in Boca Raton, Florida, was where my mom lived, where I finished high school. And I'd already enlisted in the Navy. And I would run to the beach. I would do, uh, I would swim. And then I would run home. And I would do that all before school in the morning, uh, usually four or five times a week. And then uh, my mom bought me this pull up and dip you know, tree that I had in my room. And I would tell my mom, I'd be like all day, just drop me down for push-ups or pull-ups or whatever it is. And I just tried to, to, um, all day long, I would be doing that, preparing for training. I frequently would do, um, I knew what the test is. And this is something I try and tell these young kids, because I think a lot of them don't 
simulate the test exactly like it is designed to do. You know, they don't follow the timeline exactly how it is. So what happens is you're not really prepared. And that was something I did every month. I would run the test. Um, so by the time I got to boot camp, I, I was ready. I felt good and strong. And Most boys at your age, 17, 18 years old, they're busy chasing women, drinking beer. What the hell possessed you? What drove you? Where did this come from to get this drive to do this? Was it listening to the story? Because that's not something you can teach somebody. That's either something you have or you don't. I, I, you know, and there's some truth to that. I, I don't know, you know, um, there were several factors. I mean, probably family members in the military led me to want to do it. Number two, something within me was very goal focused and driven and I wanted to be a part of this community. And number three, everybody told me I couldn't do it. I'll be honest, that, that was a fuel to my fire. I was going to prove everybody wrong. I mean, I was the 95 pound runt. Everybody said, you'll never make it. And I was like, fuck you. Watch this. Hold my, my beer. beer. Hold my beer. <laughs> when, when I was reading your book, The Triad, and I, I read about somebody might have had a little bit of a smart-ass attitude in there. I did. I, and unfortunately, <laughs> I carried that attitude a little too far. I'm lucky I didn't get kicked out. I almost, I almost didn't even make it through the MEP screening because I was mouthing off to the... Um, and for folks who don't know, tell them what MEPS is. I mean, a lot of us have been through the military, it's, you know, the AFIS induction, but MEPS is... Uh, uh, let everybody know what stage of your career are you at when you're in MEPS. Oh my God, you haven't even started yet. You're just They're just screening you. I think it stands for Military Enlistment Processing... Whatever, yeah. System, system or whatever it is. And uh, it's where you go to a center and they put you through all these medical tests. You do all this paperwork... And, uh, and yeah, I was a wise ass and man, that I, uh, that whoever the guy was, I don't remember if he was a first class or, or a E seven, but boy, he jerked me up and ripped into me. And, and, and I got to tell you, there were many times in my career that I got jerked up and ripped into because I was a wise ass and a little arrogant shit. Um, but it, it, he almost kicked me out of maps before I even started. And, Thankfully, I was smart enough to keep my mouth shut for the rest of the time I was there. Not to bring up bad memories there, but I just that's one thing that stuck out when I read your book. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not, yeah. Well, not that I, I mean, was ever like that. I'm not, it, it, it led to my downfall. I mean, that's what I love. People who haven't read my book, what they don't realize, you know, I think everybody thinks, oh, this is going to be another SEAL book. You know, this guy pounding his chest, talking about what a great, you know, how he was Achilles. And <laughs> that's not my book. My book is a story of failure, how I crash and burn failed as a young leader. And really had to reinvent myself and grow up and mature and humble myself. And, uh, you know, that's really the story of my book. Well, and real and quick, actually, before I, you say I, something, bring, I wanted to bring that up. We, we forgot to mention that there's three books. You've got The Trident, The Forging and Reforging of a Navy SEAL Leader. Then you've got another book out called Overcome, Crush Adversity with the Leadership Techniques of America's Toughest Warriors. And then your other one. Your uh, well, it's kind of a book, but it's called the Point Man Planner. So uh, that's gets your newest one. It's available now. So we should have told, done that right up front. Sorry about that, Murph. I wanted to give him a shout out on that. No, I was just I was going to say that I was going to save it till the end of the of the interview and ask you about takeaways from this because your book is you know, and I've only read the trial and I haven't read the other two yet, but it was it was very transparent. You fell on the sword. You admitted your your shortcomings and your wrongdoings, but then you also talked about how you learned from it and and you are where you are today. So. Um, but we've covered that already, so let's move on. Yeah, well, he also his Ford was written by Robert Gates, uh, I've heard former that uh, not only sec def but head of CIA, so DCI. So great, you got you got you got some cred, man. You got some cred. All right, so well, let's hey, get into this now. Yeah, let me throw one thing out. So um, 
you guys see me on my phone here while we're doing this. I just sent a message to TJ Webb. Yeah. You know? So, and, and for our listeners, you'll recall we had TJ on here, episode 90. He was the uh, Connecticut police officer that was shot, I think, five or six times and survived, should not have survived like most of the people we have on here. But I just told him, I said, man, you're not going to believe who we're interviewing right now. I said, and I, you know, I mentioned your name. I said, it made you think, I made me think of him. And uh, because as he said, he used your sign and we'll talk about your sign here shortly. But he's like, uh, awesome. So happy we can get him on, send him my regards. And then he tells me he was kind enough to write a blurb for my upcoming book. It's almost done proofreading in the final draft now. Dude, that's awesome. That's yep. awesome that you did that for a young man. You were his motor. You you know this. I don't know that our listeners know. Well, we we talked. We connected. Somebody connected me to him, and that frequently happens. I get connected to both military and law enforcement who have been shot up, uh, and I try to offer them encouragement. You know, because I've walked that road, and that you know, I mean, I've had a an amazing recovery, and some of that you know I owe to the doctors and rehab specialists, but some of it comes down to you uh, and figuring out what your new hundred percent is, which I write a lot about in the book overcome. So TJ, uh, big shout out to you, brother. Cause you set that example. Also, you were his motivation, man. That's God bless you. You might not even realize what you did for that young man, but, but God bless you for doing it. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk about that. Cause that sign was, uh, was keyed at part of his recovery, especially mentally. So we'll talk about that. So, uh, okay. We've established you're a smart ass, which I'm shocked that any Navy SEAL would be a smart ass and almost get kicked out of stuff. Not uh, a single one I've ever met was like not that. Not everybody I've met has been humble. Yeah. Very timid. We're very timid. <laughs> yeah. Oh, by the way, too, before we get into that, I got to tell you one of the greatest, um, little videos I watch cause they have one of the guys does too. Uh, he does a stolen valor. All of the stolen valors, former. It's, uh, uh, it's uh, Shipley. Um, Don Shipley, yeah. Don Shipley. He does some great stuff. Well, I saw one. It wasn't his, but it was a. You do. You go down the YouTube rat hole, and one of them will pop up. Or there's this guy claiming that he was a Navy SEAL, and there's four Army guys, Rangers, and they're they're like calling him on his bullshit. And one of the guys just kind of reaches up and slaps him. He goes, "I'm slap you like a bitch," and he slapped him on the face. He says, "That proves you're not a Navy SEAL because no SEAL would have taken that shit." And this guy was, he was a, he was a total poser and a hoser. Um, and it's just amazing what people will do to get that, um, attention. Some of these outfits you see these guys wear when Shipley goes out to interview them and they've got, you see these pictures of them. It's like, uh, I mean, that, that's gotta just drive somebody like you who's earned it nuts. It does. And it happens all the time. It happened to me just a few weeks ago. I was at an event in Minnesota and uh, went down to get my car for ballet early in the morning. And uh, the, the uh, attendant was an older gentleman, you know, probably late 60s, early 70s, but he was wearing a Navy hat. And man, I love all my veterans, man. I mean, we're brothers. And I was like, hey, what's up, man? I was in the Navy too. And I'm not, you know, I'm in workout attire. I just come from the gym or something. And um and he immediately goes, yeah, I was a Navy SEAL. Um, and, and that's your first clue, right? When somebody bleeds off with that? Yeah, because even I, and I'm out in the spotlight, don't usually tell people that. I don't lead with that. I just, I feel weird and awkward. And not only that, most of the time, if I'm in a private setting, I don't really want to talk about it. I mean, I, I golf with some people a couple of weeks ago. And they were like, oh, what did you do? I was in the military. Oh, what branch? And, you know, we kept going down the road. And finally, I'm like, yeah, I, I did operations and intelligence, which is usually what I tell people. He was a cop in Washington. And he was like, do you have a trident tattooed on your body? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, hmm. Uh, so he, he knew me. But anyways, 
It happens all the time. As a matter of fact, we there's a SEAL who is now in the FBI. And I don't know. I don't know if this is a true story or not, but he basically the, the rumor mill is that, you know, he did a study of all the people out there and he would guesstimate there's probably 10,000 fake SEALs for every real one. <laughs> yeah, 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 I would. That's probably true. Just you just look at Instagram and YouTube and all these people walking around claiming stuff. Uh, yeah, just those are crimes too. I'm glad that they've started criminalizing a lot of this. Um, well, it's only a crime if you uh, benefit from if you financially benefit from it. That's what a lot of people don't understand. Because I talked about this on my my uh, I do a weekly. I call it Monday Buster, and I talked about that guy. And there were a lot of people who were like, "Oh, he should go to jail." Um, this guy did turn out to be a veteran. He was an, and I see this a lot too, veterans who make up a story about being special operations. I'm like, why, you know, you serve, be, be proud of your service. I mean, just because you didn't do special operations, you shouldn't be embarrassed. Uh, and I just think it's sad. It is a discredit on, I got a lot of buddies who are no longer here and you were discrediting them who, who really earned it and died for it. Yeah. I'd live in, I still live in Northern Virginia, Murph abandoned me, you traitorous bastard, moved to Florida. But up in this up in this area too, there's so much you throw a rock and you can hit one of the intelligence agencies around here, 17, you know, 18 of them. And but it always gets me, you talk to people, people who really do the work. Like I did a lot of stuff for State Department overseas and you'd be in Pakistan. And I made the mistake one time. I said, they said, where are you from? I said, Northern Virginia. They go, oh, I said, but not that Northern Virginia. I mean, I'm really from Northern Virginia. I wanted to be clear because there's guys you talk to out here, they go, I can't tell you what I did that's classified. Well, number one, that's bullshit. Number two, um, most people who really do the work, I was at State Department. I was at Defense or Logistics, you know, or did something else. They have a story. Nobody walks around. I even talk to people who are analysts with CIA, run the Russian desk or whatever else. They'll tell you, hey, I'm an analyst. I've got this is my section. So that's the other flag, too. The minute they go, and that's the famous one I saw Shipley talk, well, I can't tell you what I did. It's classified. He goes, you're full of shit. I got the entire database of SEALs right here. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people don't know that. That You know, you can have done classified operations, but... Um, training itself. The fact that you went through buds is not classified. Correct. Yeah. Well, let's, let's get into the fun stuff. So, uh, tell us now about, about your journey into SEALs because, uh, you survived MEPS. Obviously you survived going through your AIT, you know, getting out there. Um, you're doing this work in the library, exciting work, you know, you're thinking, is this what I'm supposed to, is this what James Bond does? Get a paper cut and saves the world. But, uh, how do you get out of the library hell and actually get into the shit? I, well, I was just waiting. So I was training, um, which was both good and bad. I mean, it was awesome that I was assigned to the headquarters of the East Coast SEAL team. So I got to do some stuff. I actually got assigned over to SEAL Team 4 for a while, and I got to work back then what we called operational readiness exercises. So, you know, as, as platoons are training up to deploy, the last thing they do is they go through a series of exercises to prove they have the ability to do all the things real world if something was to go down. Um, so I got to go work in that cell, which was amazing. Uh, very cool to be able to see guys doing real world things and to be watching and being involved. And, you know, I got to rappel out of helicopters and fast rope and all the stuff that I really had not qualified to do yet, but they let me do. Um, the flip side of that coin is when I went out to Bud's, I'd been around all these SEALs who had friends who were SEAL instructors who called out there and said, hey, you got this young skinny runt coming out. Give him a Make hard sure time. you give him a lot of attention. <laughs> and at some point when I was in training, myself and one other guy had been assigned to the, uh, to the teams before he went to Bud's. And they found both of us had pictures 
like looking like cool guys uh, because we had got to train with the platoons and all oh, the instructors ate that up. Oh, I got my ass kicked. When did you go through BUDS? I started in January of 95 and I graduated uh, December of 95. So I did the, I got double rolled. Um, I got rolled the first time probably in, um, I want to say maybe August. What does that um, mean? Uh, it means that for whatever reason, when you get rolled, you get pulled out of the class you're in, whether it's you, whether it's performance, meaning you failed a run or some sort of test, or it's um, or it's medical. Mine were both medical. I never I uh, I came close to failing swims after I broke my arm, but I I got rolled because I had some bad tendonitis in my feet. Um, in the summer with my original class, class 200. And then I rolled, um, I was supposed to class back up with class 201. And then I went down to Mexico. And uh, the, the story that the instructors got was I was rock climbing and uh, fell and broke my arm. The real story was I was drunk off my ass. And I mean, everybody knows this story now. I think it's in my book. <laughs> but I was drunk off my ass in, uh, in Rosarita, I believe. And uh, tried to do a flip off the boardwalk. These young Mexican kids were doing flips off the boardwalk, although, you know, their their body al alcohol content was zero. And mine was probably at least five. Um, <laughs> you know, there might have been three kids doing flips. I saw 50. And uh, I was like, I can do that. And broke, you know, clean break, uh, both bones. So... Thankfully, I, I think the instructors liked me enough that they um, allowed me to roll back one additional time, although it was with a caveat. Uh, my cast came off only two weeks before class 202 started up, and they were like, we don't care. You're classing up with 202, so we, you, know, you better figure out how to be ready two weeks after you get your cast off. So I had to continue to work out uh, really hard um, leading up to that, but even then, um, my 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 arm was pretty weak. I failed almost every swim until finally they paired me with one of the faster guys in the class, um, Jim Hoy. If you're out there, I wouldn't have made it through. Uh, I wouldn't have passed those swims if it wasn't for you. He was a uh, he was a a great guy and a great swimmer, and he would just scream at me the whole swim as I'd try and keep up with him. Damn, Sounds that's like amazing. Yeah. <laughs> what? Sounds don't, like say, a wife. don't say it too loud, Murph. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, have you ever read David Goggins' book, You Can't Break Me? I haven't yet. Um, yeah, I'm not I asking you. Yeah, I'm not talking good or bad. All I'm saying is, but he did say something in that that I thought is exactly what you did. And I think that's one of the leadership lessons they found out is that you've got a really good team, you've got a good leader, you've got good people. Um, and one thing they're trying to do is even up the teams, right? So that people, because sometimes you get other teams, you know, crews that would fall way back. And what they found out is that um, you you take if you take a bad leader and put them with a good crew, you actually bring them down. Good leaders bring you know lower performing crews up, and it, it really I mean that was one of the lessons that stuck with me when I look at this. It, it, so much of this boils down to leadership. I mean exactly what you're talking about, your pal, leadership. That's what you, you were failing the other swims, but why is it that you failed the other swims, but you managed to do it with this guy? And I think a lot of it was just the leadership. Yeah, the right motivation, you know, pushing through, you know, it's interesting when you're by yourself, you'll hit these mental barriers, but somebody else can push you through those mental barriers, that discomfort. And he was setting a pace and, and made me made me keep up. So um, which is awesome. 
I mean, you know, he helped me, you know, make it through training with, uh, after I, you know, after I was weaker with my broken arm. So, um, you know, and the interesting thing I tell guys all the time, this, and this was a flaw that I had when I became a leader later, I felt like, oh, I've got to be great at everything. And you're never going to be great at everything. I've been fortunate enough now to be able to speak to all the academies except for West Point. Hopefully West Point will happen sometime in the future. But I would tell all those guys is, hey, man, you're never you're going to have strengths as a leader and you're going to have weaknesses. And there are going to be guys who may be better at you than everything. That doesn't make you a bad leader. As long as they see you're killing yourself and, and you know, achieving your 100 percent, you know, people are going to respect that, follow that. And, you know, that was something that I began to learn further along in my career. Well, I personally uphold your uh, approval to speak at West Point when uh, Navy beat Army last year. Um, so, I mean, sorry, man, that was me. So when Army beats Navy this year, you'll be invited back. So <laughs> that's let you know. Well, give, give him a double. That was a great. That was a great win uh, in honor of uh, uh, Commander Bourgeois, who uh, had died and played on the the Navy team. So that was an unexpected win. We did not expect to win that, but man, it was a I tough season. Niamata Tololo, I keep keep I mean, he's gone now. So I mean, it's like uh, so I mean, but it's he'd kind of run his course. Good guy, but um, like even the Navy, the Navy's kind of like Notre Dame. That's how I did my graduate work at. My dad actually taught ROTC at Notre Dame during the Vietnam War, and. Uh, but I mean, that was like you go to places like that. Navy expects to win, especially in the areas of football. That's what they do, you know. So a couple of tough seasons. Anyway, we'll get past football. So let's talk about uh, you finally graduate. Um, what now? I got to tell you real quick. Sorry, this is a divergent. Um, um, this is our, we have a drinking game. If I go off on a tangent, you know, um, uh, you get to take a drink. But I actually had the chance because he was out here in North Virginia to meet before he passed away, Richard Marcinko. And it was funny. This has been probably 12, 13 years ago. And I'm asking him because um, he created SEAL Team 6, you know, credited with that. And I, I remembered the answer to this day. And I'm thinking, that's the way you got to think about the problem. I said, what? You know, there's only three SEAL teams. Why'd you call it SEAL Team 6? Because he said, because I wanted the bastards to worry where four and five was. <laughs> and I thought, perfect. Yeah, no, what, a, what a perfect answer, man. Yeah, that guy, I mean, you know, really impressive. I mean, uh, Marcinko. Warrior, yeah. An interesting guy. I mean, I've met him, did a couple of events with him, but uh, the the people either loved him or hated him. I mean, there was no lukewarm feelings about Marcinko. The guys, I mean, I worked with guys later who actually still, who worked directly under him and they loved him. And there were other guys who hated him, but you can't deny what that guy did. I mean, to stand up a counterterrorism unit that was on the same par as Delta, who had many years, uh, you know, head start on us. Special mission impressive. unit Delta, according to Kevin Holland, Delta doesn't exist. Special mission unit Delta. I just wanted you to be factually correct. Thank you, sir, for uh, correcting me. I, I, <laughs> I would not want to be. I would. I would not want to be misquoted. <laughs> hey, I, I, I can <laughs> quote you all over Twitter. Jason Redmond doesn't know what he's talking about. He's a he's a fraud. <laughs> Call Don Shipley. Yeah. yeah. For yeah. Our listeners, when I'm when I'm calling out these doubles, he's getting a double middle finger from both of us. So you know what I'm talking you can, about. You know, you can see who is the smart ass, you know, uh, in my work too, you know. <laughs> um well, so but but let's talk about that though too. So um what SEAL team when you come out, how does that work? You know, well, let me ask you this before we get out of buds, because Kevin gave us a whole master class on that, because I don't want to go back and revisit all of that. But for you, did you ever reach that point? Did it even cross your mind about ringing the bell? Sure. I mean, and I think I think anybody out there who says they never thought about ringing the bell is a liar. 
Um, buds suck. How'd you push through it? Well, you know, it's like anything in this life. You recognize that, hey, if I quit, if I give up, I'm not going to make it to the finish line. And, 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 and buds, if you ring that bell, I try to tell kids this to go through training now. There's only one thing you can control, and that's whether you ring that bell or not. Life's like this. Um, we, we can't control all the external factors that are going to affect us in life and no different in buds. You can't control if you get an injury, maybe you, you know, I mean, there were guys who just their, their body density was so thick. They would sink when we would do drown proofing. And those guys had a considerably harder time trying to figure out how to drown proof compared to guys who could fill their lungs and were a little more buoyant. You can't control some of those things. The only thing you can control is whether you ring that bell or not. And, uh, and every guy that goes through training, everybody hits a breaking point. They, they, training is designed to break you. That is, and, and, you know, for, for some evolution, you may be really strong at it, but there will, there will always be an evolution that eventually will expose your weaknesses and you will get pushed across that cliff of discomfort, pain, failure, whatever it is. And those are the points that guys then end up saying, I can't, I can't do this. And they quit. Um, you know, for me, uh, I hit that point at the pool on a Thursday night during Hell Week. And I thought to myself, this sucks. I don't want to do this anymore. Um, I remember looking down at the uh, bell down below. It was on the back of a truck. They bring it around to wherever you go during Hell Week. They make it nice and easy for you to quit. And, uh, and I remember, I don't know if it was a buddy that said something or just I came to the realization, but I was like, dude, if you go down and quit, that's the end of this journey. You do not become a SEAL. You're just a quitter. And once you ring the bell, you don't, there's no, uh, there's no mulligans. You don't get to do it over again. Right. If you're an enlisted guy, you can come back after two years, uh, which is hard to do because you're going to go off to the regular Navy and the regular Navy, you're going to start working for the regular Navy. So I know a lot of guys, I have a good friend who ended up being a very senior high level, uh, SEAL team six operator later in his career. It took him six years. He didn't quit, but it took him six years to get from the regular Navy to SEAL training. Uh, he had to re-enlist and keep pushing because regular Navy wants to hang on to good sailors. And usually good sailors, usually good sailors make good bud students. Um, if you are an officer and you quit, you're never allowed to come back. Now, are the are the uh, standards for officers and enlisted the same? Uh, the physical standards are the same, although... Um, the physical standards are the same, although the... Um, um, academic standards are higher for officers. Okay. Uh, you, you, I mean, that's, that, it's interesting because a lot of people think, I mean, you still got to be qualified from a physical standpoint, but if you're going to be, if you're enlisted versus uh, commissioned, you know, there's going to be some, some people, I heard somebody say one time, it said, um, while the officers may shoulder the responsibility, it's the enlisted shoulder the burden, you know, and they, they are responsible. They carry, they, they're the brawn. They're the ones who carry out the orders, you know, to do those things. Uh, yeah, in, in the regular SEAL teams, I mean, definitely in BUDS, I mean, the officers and the boat crew leaders get um, pounded like everybody else, get the brunt of the, yeah, I mean, the instructors definitely are focused on, hey, someday, and this is the way it works. I mean, BUDS instructors go back to the platoons. So they're, man, what they're looking at is, could I work for this guy? 
is this guy going to be a good leader? And they really put the stress and, and, and strain on officers. And it's a lot harder to get to SEAL training as an officer. We only have um, every year there's only 60 slots. Naval, Naval Academy gets 30. So right off the bat, that means there's only 30 slots left across the entire nation. And that includes guys like me, who was an enlisted guy who said, I want to become an officer. Um, so it, it is ultra, ultra, ultra competitive. So when we say the physical standards are the same as enlisted, that is true. The minimum standard is the same. But I will say the criteria to qualify as an officer is significantly higher. Um, and, and all across the board, they're looking at not only their physical standards, they're looking at their academic abilities, they're looking at their leadership abilities, they're looking at, you know, what things have they done in their lives that may potentially make them a good leader. I mean, if you're a young man out there and you're thinking about becoming a SEAL officer, my recommendation is go study, go look at the hot spots in the world and go study the culture and languages, you know, North Korean, Chinese, Russian, uh, Iran, Farsi. <laughs> Yeah, look. Farsi. I spoke Farsi. My dad. We were lived in Iran growing up. That's what got me in trouble. I spoke Farsi. Well, and that those are the things that we're going to look at because if we put everybody side by side and we go, hey, Jason Redman, you know, he's qualified. You know, he's strong enough. He's smart enough. Oh, but you know, Johnny Boy over here, Morgan Wright, he speaks Farsi, and they're equal. They're going to pick Morgan Wright over Jason Redman. Not so, once they get to know him. <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's my super secret skill. Yeah. Hey, but you mentioned something interesting. You were enlisted and, and you became officer like after about 10 years. Did you have to requalify for SEALs when you became an officer? I did not. Although now they have changed that. You don't have to go back through BUDS, but what they'll have you do is go back through. So BUDS is kind of like boot camp for SEALs. Uh, basically what does BUDS do? And BUDS stands for Basic Underwater Demolition SEAL Training. That is, there is no SEAL out there that's never been through BUDS. Um, when you, but BUDS basically teaches you how to be physically hard. So the first part is we just beat the shit out of you for roughly seven to nine weeks. Hell week occurs in the first part. It is just designed to weed out people who don't want to be there. Second phase of BUDS is dive training. That's where you're learning how to be a competent diver um, so that you can go do real-world combat swimmer missions. You learn all the basics of safety, dive physics, dive medicine, and how to conduct basic um, um, combat swimmer operations profiles. And then the third phase, they teach you how to be safe with weapons and explosives and things like that. Once you get done with that, you go to what we call, it used to be called SEAL tactical training. Now it's called SEAL qualification training. That's kind of like college. So you're starting to learn more advanced stuff. So if you leave the community for greater than three years, um, like I did going to school, now they're sending guys through a modified, um, the advanced training. You're going back to college because that training is updated and, and on a regular basis. Yeah, exactly. I mean. So you're getting the most current tactics. You're seeing the most current things. Now you don't have to, you know, the students are still getting their ass kicked because they haven't got their tridents yet. So apparently you don't have to do that. You just kind of stand by and wave at them as they get their ass kicked. But see, it's interesting because a lot of people, and I, not that I had the misconception, but I, I had to think about it when we were talking to Kevin, because SEALs, I mean, one of the things you guys do, you do a lot of weapons training, but the, the funny part is you don't even really touch weapons until like the third phase, right? I mean, it's it's not about the weapons. If you can't make it, you're not, you don't get to be a trigger puller no matter what, right? So it's it's between that and your frogmen at heart, right? So part of that is you got to learn to, you know, the water is uh, what you guys do. 
It is. Everything is around the water and it just makes everything ex exponentially harder. I mean, people just don't realize coming from the water, salt water, sand, the corrosive effects. I mean, the effects on your body, the effects on your mind, uh, it's tough. And, and they really, that is a large part of the discomfort that they build into you. You have to learn how to operate in the worst conditions, cold, wet, miserable, but you still have to be able to function and do those things. And that's really what you know, Bud starts to teach you. And I remember in training, they would say, oh, you know, you're going to be colder and wetter when you get into the teams. I remember thinking, you're so full of shit. You know, you're just saying that, you know, I'm going to have the greatest gear. And man, they were so right. There were times in training where I was far colder and more miserable in, in platoon style mission training than when I went through Bud's. So, and I, but like you said, no, you don't touch a single weapon. You'll carry around shapes. So meaning they're like a, it's not a real weapon. It looks like a weapon and it weighs the same. You may carry some shapes during earlier parts of buds just to simulate things, but it's not until the end of the training that you get into real weapons. And that's probably the last thing that weeds guys out because if you are unsafe with a weapon or you're unsafe with explosive, which happens in every class, <laughs> I, I remember going through basic training, Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. This is 1979. All of our drill sergeants, combat vets, got the CIB, the Combat Infantry Badge, all have been to Vietnam. And they they went in depth about when we we're getting ready to, you know, learn to throw grenades and stuff. They talked about here's your foxhole, there's the there's the shoot, the grenade goes, something happens, you kick it into that, you know. you I didn't really it didn't happen with us, but it happened uh about a week earlier at another one of the other uh uh, companies that was going through training, but so what somebody did, they pulled the pin, they fumbled it, they dropped it, and the drill sergeant kicked it down to that foxhole, down into that um, uh, chute for the grenade. And had he not done that, man, it would have taken out three or four guys. And <laughs> that guy, that guy did not make it. Apparently, there were drill sergeants from fifty miles away flying in just so they could get a piece of this guy's ass. Nice, yeah. <laughs> Some people just aren't cut out. You know, hey, there's a great opportunity for you someplace else. We have the job for you, <laughs> yeah. peeling potatoes. Yeah. Follow me, son. So uh, so you get through all of this. You finally graduate. It's taken you a year because you said you, you uh, went through it a second time. But once you get out, what's that feeling like when you finally complete and you get that trident? Well, it, it, it doesn't happen overnight. I mean, the way that when I went through, there was a probationary period that was a minimum of six months and up to a year. I think for me, it was almost up to a year. So you checked into the oh, SEAL I'm team. I'm shocked. Did anything having to do with you being a smart ass or anything? No, it was no. everyone. Everyone. Everyone <laughs> okay. went through this. And I'll tell you what, you had the old pipe hitters. We called them the E5 Mafia at the team. And it was their job to keep the new guys in line. And they made it very clear the second you checked in, nobody gives a fuck that you made it through training. So did everybody else here. You Now you have to earn it. And right off the bat, they're like, go get wet and go get wet and sandy. And you're like, dude, I just graduated, buds. What? And uh, you would go get wet. And man, uh, yeah, so frequently... You would be still playing all the reindeer games, but at the same time, you now were having to learn everything related to being a young seal. We used to have these uh, boards, and you had a physical board, breaking down weapons, dive equipment. You had to know everything about all our gear, and then you would have the oral boards where you'd be quizzed on everything we did, and you had to pass both of these uh, along with completing other things, 10 jumps, you had to have a water jump, all these things you had to do before you got your trident. So by the time you got your trident, and we lost guys along the way, if you got yourself in trouble in town, you were gone. And I remember guys that graduated my class that got booted because they got themselves in trouble. 
So no, no going back to Rosarita and breaking your arm this time. No, and it's a miracle that I did not get my uh, that I wasn't one of the guys that got myself in trouble. I, I I will say I was probably smart enough not to be too dumb, but you know I was a young young knucklehead. So so by the time you get to that end of the by the time you actually get to your trident after the like say the end of two years or a year and a half if you didn't get uh, have, get rolled back, but um, what's the attrition rate from the number of people who start till the number of people that finally get the trident? I mean, I'd say it's probably 80 to 85 percent. You know, Bud's is 70 to 80 percent. You know, we probably lost four or five guys, I would say, who got themselves in trouble and booted. Um, And by the time you get it, you know, yeah, it's pretty amazing. I mean, um, back then we were still allowed to tack your trident on. It was a big ceremony. I mean, the whole team would line up and and, you know, they would just, you know, black and blue your chest as they, you know, punched that trident in. But it was, I mean, it was amazing. I mean, you were like, wow, I'm really part of this, this brotherhood. Um, you know, I have, and you definitely felt like you earned it at that point. Although once again, you would be reminded you're right. Hey, guess what? New guy, every guy here, he's been through this too. Yeah. You're, you're, and it used to be prior to the war, the mindset was two platoons. You were still a new guy unless you had done two platoons. So let's talk about your transition, going from enlisted to officer. You took some time off. But like we were saying, part of that was um, nothing was really going on. So kind of your decision point, right? Things in 98 slowed down, not the op tempos pretty slow. So um, what'd you do? So I was at a decision point in my career. I could have screened for our next tier SEAL team, which I was thinking about doing. I think any good SEAL aspires to that. Um, but I also was kind of like, well, what does the future hold? There wasn't a whole lot going on in the world. But how tough was that for you to be in school while all this other stuff is going on? You got buddies going downrange, people are deploying and you're having to, it's like, how do you stay attuned to doing school? Um, you know, I'll be honest and it was hard. Um, it was hard in the beginning. Um, but still not quite guys were doing operations. I mean, it started picking up oh two, oh three, oh four, oh four it went up. And uh we started started losing. I think we lost our our first guy first guy, I was in two. Uh I think Bourgeois was the very first SEAL we lost in Afghanistan. And then it just kind of started picking up steam from there. Um I just focused on, hey, when we get done, you know, we're gonna be going to war. Um we I did we I didn't have that ODU to honor everybody what we had lost the run for freedom, which to this day has been has been ranked top twenty-five events Old Dominion University has ever done. And we basically ran a flag one mile for every service member we had lost. So for many of them it was not many of them, but several of them were teammates. We invited family members to come down and run the flag in honor of their loved ones and we raised I want to say we want to say we raised six thousand dollars for different nonprofits through this event. So I mean, we tried we tried to stay to the community, um, tried to stay focused in the ROTC program for hey, this is what we're going to do, and uh, obviously leading up to me getting commissioned in May of two thousand four. What, now, when you get commissioned and you finish your school, um, what's your? Do they give you? Is it a specific degree for the military? General degree? What do you do? What do you graduate in? So, whenever you could pick your degree, um, the Navy has tightened that up, and you now have to have an engineering degree. I got a degree in business management with a um, with a uh, a minor in leadership studies. So that was my degree, a BS. 
<laughs> BS. Well, what were you doing during this time, though, to stay ready, to stay prepared for uh, getting your commission and going back to the SEAL teams, going back to the teams? We worked out. I mean, you know, fortunately, there was probably about six or seven SEALs that were in the program with me. My two best friends, who we both got picked up to Seaman Admiral together that year. We had the year ahead of us, which we were friends with those guys and guys, and then we had behind us. So together, there was six or seven SEALs at ODU. Um, one of the things that didn't exist when I was there at the ROTC was every community for the Navy had a club in ROTC. You had the Aviation Club, you had the Surface Warfare Club, you had the Submariner Club, you had the Intel Club, you had the Medical Club, and I was like, well, why isn't there a Special Operations Club? And there was a club, and nobody wants to do that. And I was, and I was like, you... And uh, so we, we created a club. And um, so we had young midshipmen that became part of that club. And, you know, we all trained together. Uh, we didn't have a very good track record, I will tell you that. And I think that part of that problem was because we treated those guys like one of us. And later I came to find out with buddies of mine that were in mind that were, and he said, yeah, those guys acted like they had, all, they had already made. I think that so lessons learned, you know, we probably should have maintained separation with these younger kids that wanted to be SEALs from us, uh, but we didn't. You know, we just kind of incorporated them into our fold, but we trained hard. We worked out hard. You know, every day we linked up and we worked out together. Um, and uh, and the, ni the nice going to school in Norfolk, the SEAL teams were right down the street. So we needed to maintain our, our jump and dive quals. So, you know, about every six months, we would go back and jump and dive to maintain those quals and, you know, hear what was going on, which we all had friends who were still active duty. So we constantly were hearing what was, go hearing what was going on. Wow. And it, so you go through a lot, but you got to be functioning at the bit, right? So you graduate. What happens after you graduate? You get your commission. Um, are, are Now, you commissioned because of your time. Do you go as an 01 or do you get to jump the rank a little bit? No, you right. You know, 01, same as everybody else. And this is where my career got a little bit off track. I think um, um, ego and was start row. You know, I had uh, I'd done, I'd done really a young enlisted guy. I'd been ranked high. Um, I had excelled and obviously getting picked up for this commissioning program. Um, I graduated number one out of the o ODU ROTC and, um, and basically came back thinking, man, I'm going to be God's gift to leadership, leadership and deal teams. Like I was, I don't know, fucking Pat Patton or something. Um, and, and, and you wanted, obviously nine 11 happened. I wanted to get in the mix. I wanted payback like a lot of other people which is a dangerous thing as a young leader i mean there's a, there's a difference between wanting to do that and there's the right opportunity and pressing for that to happen um didn't happen and i think that's really the balance once as a younger especially a combat leader there's the right tie time and place and i then the other thing that happened is i came back as a young officer our tactics had really changed in the three-year period that I had been, I had left the teams uh, as an instructor and came back as a operator again. We um, fun fundamentally changed the way we were doing things. Um, f frequently, the military bases a lot of our strategy and tactics off to the last time of sustained combat. Well, prior to 9/11, the last period of real sustained combat was Vietnam. So for the SEAL teams, we were still using a lot of the old Vietnam-style tactics. 
Well, they quickly figured out a lot of that stuff didn't work in Iraq and Afghanistan. Afghanistan, you're now the mountain and desert. You're dealing in complicated. But how tough was that for um, you to be in school? Layouts, you know, a lot of close quarters combat. We started getting much more involved in long range mobility operations, uh, a lot more involved in, in helicopter assault operations, which we were kind of already doing that. But the way those blended. So I came back and there was a steep learning curve and uh, and uh, and ego and arrogance kind kind of got away because instead of humbling myself and this is where leaders you know I tell young leaders you know it, it, you don't have to know everything and humbling yourself and asking the younger guys if they're smarter than you how to do something is not a sign of weakness um and I didn't do that I let my pride get in the way and I kept I was hanging on too tight and I was tight and I was on my toes and and making mistakes and uh, which led me to try and hang on tighter, which led me then to do the age old thing that fucked so many of us. Uh, I started drinking too much. You know, I was drowning my sorrows at night. So not only was I tactically stepping on my toes, I was um, getting a name for a drunk. So all that kind of came to kind of came together. Perfect storm. Storm. We deployed to uh, we deployed to Germany first. Uh, our, our platoon split, uh, or I'm sorry, our troops split. We were part of a troop that was led by Eric Christensen, uh, which a lot of people may recognize that name because Eric was in charge of the Operation Red Wing. Uh, Eric was my, bo- my boss. Um, several of the guys on the helicopter on the helicopter got down in Red Wings were friends and teammates of mine. Uh, I was actually originally in that platoon that was on the helicopter, and they moved me to our sister platoon. That's a whole nother long story. But um, but we deployed to Germany first and we were on standby in Germany doing different operations, operations, forces. And, uh, and me and my chief, my platoon, my platoon chief did not get along. We butted heads severely. Um, and um, probably if I managed to swallow my ego a little bit, it would have been better, but I didn't. I just kind of saw him as a, as a threat and a problem. So we just continued to butt heads. He was, um, um, he was a good chief. He was a good SEAL, although though he kind of my way or the highway mentality. And, uh, although if I'd looked at it, you know, they're probably frequently he would try and tell me, hey, man, you need to cut back on your drinking. You need to watch what you're doing. And I'd be like, hey, fuck off. Um, so all of these things contributed to this perfect storm. Uh, that happened in Afghanistan. So, so first things that happened is we were getting ready, ready to fly to Afghanistan. Um, June June 28, only had a couple of days where we were flying to Afghanistan. And obviously, we got word that the helicopter had been shot down. We got word that Marcus Luttrell was missing and uh, on E&E. And we didn't know anything beyond that. And over the next couple of days, we started to find out that, hey, all the guys on the helicopter were killed. We had lost our close, our close teammate, lost our boss, uh, Eric Christensen. Um, Marcus finally had been recovered. So the very first, uh, time I met Marcus was there in Launchstuhl, um, myself and some other teammates, we drove up to Launchstuhl and met Marcus, Danny Dietz and Mike Murphy had been recovered. And we went and stood the watch for a little bit of time for the guys flying the honor, honor flight back with them. Um, um, and I think maybe the next day or the following day, we flew to Afghanistan and recovery operations were still underway for Matt Axelson. And they finally uh, recovered uh, Axe's body. And my first introduction to combat was uh, the ramp ceremony and the memorial for 19 of our teammates. 
um, um, love to say that that should have been a humbling moment moment for me. Like shit, this is for real. And in some ways it was, but the flip side of that coin, I think, as a young, immature leader who had been fucking up, it was more of man, I man, I want my opportunity to take the fight to the enemy, um, which is once again good and bad. There's got to be a balance there as a young leader, and. Um, you know, there's more to this story. I worry, I no punches in my book to try to, but but it kind of culminated with a bad call on a mission in southern Afghanistan in September, and uh, we were tasked to sweep through a valley, and uh, that had a lot of heavy Taliban activity. Um, I was in charge of a machine gun sniper team and a javelin team on the eastern uh, ridge line. And as another, you know, you know, through the valley below, they got into multiple multiple engagements. Uh, later in the day, they got into another big engagement with the Taliban. Um, they called for reinforcements. I was one of the furthest ones forward with a machine gun, and I made the decision to go down into the valley. Um, not a good call. Um, Why? Stop there for a second. Why? Because a lot of folks won't understand tactics. So when you say it's not a good call, what made that not a good call? So it wasn't a good call on a number of reasons. One, first and foremost, it was driven because I wanted to get in the fight. So that's never a good reason. Um, when I um, when I checked back with our headquarters element, who my platoon chief was running the 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 com the com um, ground force command commander who was there, and this is where you know never you know never let your feelings get in the way of professional decision making. Uh, and I did because he was like, you know, don't go down into that valley. And, you know, months and months of him and I butting heads. And I was like, you know, you're only telling me that because, you know, you and I don't get along. So I was pretty much like, fuck off. Uh, bad call, bad decision, bad decision. If I had been smarter and actually, actually took us back and said, OK, well, what's going on? Why? I found out that they were trying to scramble air support uh, to support these guys in the valley. So I made the decision to take myself and my machine gunner. I mean, and this was no small distance. It wasn't like we were trying to cover a couple hundred yards. I mean, it was um, probably a thousand foot drop down into that valley and, and, and only at least half a mile, if not three quarters of a mile to link up with these guys on the ground, ground, unknown enemy elements throughout, you know, extensive cave complexes. I mean, we're so lucky that we didn't get shot up, that we didn't drop down and pass by a cave complex that enemy fighters could have popped out above us and just smoke checked us. So it was a bad call. Um, we lost radio, com radio comms that dropped off the side of that cliff. And by the time we finally made it to the bottom of the valley and re regained uh, communications, my my boss, who was our executive officer, was screaming fire into the radio like, where in the fuck are you guys? Get the hell out of that valley. We're trying to bring in air support. Uh, and that's kind of where I figured out I had fucked up. Uh, so we, we scampered up the north side of the valley and, uh, uh, finally, you know, but that's a thousand feet though. I mean, how did you get the thousand feet? Was that all, did you have, uh, any, you know, repelling gear or whatever? Was that all just done by foot and trails and, um, foot and trails? I mean, it was, it was definitely pretty vertical, but not so vertical that you couldn't climb in and out. Um, but going down a thousand feet is a hell of a lot easier with all your gear than going up a thousand feet. Well, you know, when I had, uh, you know, the ground force, ground force commander fire into the radio, get your ass out of that valley. You're stopping us from calling in air support. That was motivation. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But when I got out the other side, I realized that I had screwed up because guys were like, what in the fuck were you thinking?
Hey, players, that is the end of part one. Part two comes out, as always, on Tuesday. In the meantime, go check us out at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Also, go check out our website, GameofCrimesPodcast.com. We've got a lot more information there, including our book list. Any book written by our guests will be listed there. In the meantime, go check us out also, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. It's where we put a lot more content you won't hear on our regular podcast. We go into a lot more topics, and folks, it is a lot of fun. So go check us out, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. In the meantime, everybody stay safe. We'll see you tomorrow for part two.